0: Another way to look at the psalm, verses one through six, which we looked at last last two weeks, we actually jumped into verse seven uh, to some degree. Verses one through six is the Father speaking. Verses seven through nine is God the Son speaking. And and I I like to look at verses ten through twelve as the Holy Spirit primarily speaking. Now, some will say that's the psalmist speaking again. And, of course, the psalmist wrote all this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. But your primary speaker in verses 1 through 7, the Father, excuse me, 1 through 6, the Father, One through uh, 7 through 9, the Son, and 10 through 12, I believe is the Holy Spirit speaking. Uh, This has application to the time of Jesus. I believe it has application to a time yet to be. This idea of the nations raging, people plotting a vain thing, the kings of the earth set themselves together, verse 2, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The anointed, I believe, is referring to the Messiah. All right? All right. And then the son begins to speak, and he says, I will declare the decree. Okay. Um, I I did some more digging on this idea of the decree because I found it it kind kind of fascinating. And it essentially means to mark something out, to define it. It is actually a legal regulation or a legal statute. That's why this is also interpreted as a coronation psalm that may have been read during the coronation of a new king in Judah. It's definitely talking about the coronation of a new king whom the father will set on the holy hill of Zion. The father doesn't say who it is. I find it fascinating. But then the son comes right underneath it and says, I will declare the decree. The Lord, which is a reference to the father in this context, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So I thought that was really fascinating because we we went into Romans chapter 1 last week, if you remember. Remember? And uh, Romans talks about Jesus being uh, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Peter talks about this, I referred to it just a second ago in Acts chapter 4, referring to this begottening of God of the son referring not to his birth but to what the resurrection and i got into the language use and this is you know sometimes i i feel like i have a hard enough time explaining greek but hebrew just takes it a step further but different verbal stems with the way this word Yod is used, which is the Hebrew word translated begotten. It speaks not of progeneration from father to son, but it speaks of a relationship between peoples. And it's used in that context in Genesis chapter 10 in what is referred to as the table of the nations. It's talking about a relationship between peoples. Okay, so I've kind of caught you all up. Um, I hope. So, because again, some people will read this and they'll say, see, the Son was begotten. Was the Son begotten? Yes, but not in the context that we normally consider what it means to be begotten. And as I want to keep saying, both in looking in the Scriptures, in the Gospel of John, and also in here in the Psalms, is, yes, the Son is submitted to the Father, but his submission to the Father does not mean he is not equal. It is a, a description of their relationship, not their hierarchy, which is very important to understand. Um, and too often what it is, we come to the Scriptures and we bring our own understanding upon them rather than just trying to allow the Scriptures to speak. So the book of Acts, in fact, I got, it was, okay, it was right here in front of me. I took more notes than I even know what to do with. Um, Just some of the supremacy of Christ that I went through and not copied and pasted. I didn't type them all out. I saw that look. Okay, that in, so if you want a copy, I can burn this for you. But, but Paul, Acts 13, I want to take a quick turn there. We're going to bounce around in the New Testament a little bit tonight. Hopefully we'll get past this verse. But ta- Paul talks about this. There were two other things about this idea of the father begottening or begetting, that's past tense, the son, that I want to take a look at. Acts 13, Paul is, is preaching. I'm trying to figure out where I want to start. He's talking to them about Jesus. Says 26, 13, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. Okay? So who is he speaking to? Who are the sons of the family of Abraham in that context? He's talking to Jews, right? Yeah. All right? Israelites. And those among you who fear God. So he's including everybody. All right? So that was, a, that was actually a technical title that the Jews had for Gentiles who were followers of the true and living God. They were called God-fearers. Um, and for, so, for those those of you among you who fear God, to the word of to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, okay, that that should raise your intent a little bit. The Psalm too. Uh, and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor e- even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, uh, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had (coughs) fulfilled (coughs) all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So he's preaching the resurrection to them. And it says, And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you the good... Tidings, that promise which made, which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this to uh, uh, fulfilled this for us, their children, as He raised up Jesus. Now let's back up a second. We declare to you the glad tidings, verse thirty-two. That promise which was made to the fathers. Who are the fathers? The Old Testament people, all right? That's what he's talking about. He's taking this way back. A promise made to the fathers. And so if God made a promise, would it not, wouldn't you think it would be recorded in Scripture? Yes, as many of them are. I would say, I would venture to say all of them are. But um, God fulfilled this for us, their children the Father's children, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2.7, Septuagint version. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So he's quoting, from uh, Isaiah there in verse 34. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he's essentially making the same argument that if you haven't read it, Acts chapter 2. It's essentially re Peter's sermon. We're not going to take the time to really uh, jump into this. Um, but he, again refers to the begottening of Jesus as the resurrection. So he's speaking symbolically, is he not? I think he's speaking symbolically. The writer of Hebrews, any questions so far? So I got curious because Acts thirteen thirty three. that's the top one here. And then I came up with, Psalm 118, Matthew 28, Mark 16, John 17, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, Philippians 2, 9 through 12, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 1, and 1 Peter 3. These, just some verses that talk about the, the supremacy of the reign of Jesus Christ from the resurrection forward, okay? Because he is now doing what? Jesus is currently doing what? Where is Jesus currently, according to the scriptures? Today. Seated at the right hand of the Father, okay? It's a place of honor. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Philippians 2, verse 9. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Alright. The supremacy of Jesus who is reigning even today. However, back to Psalm 2. We're going to go to Hebrews 5 in just a second. Just, as a, just to warn you. But back to Psalm 2. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Has that happened? Been to Zion lately? Has that happened? No. So it's future. Again, is what I, and, and, and I love this description of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is here, but it is not yet here in its fullness, but it is currently here. Um, either Jesus is on the throne right now, or he's not. And there are times that it, it I feel like it, it, you have to wonder, particularly with the, a long, the long leash that I, call, I refer to, the long leash that the Lord gives evil. a very long leash. Incidentally, I may come back to this, I may forget it, so I'm going to throw it out here now while I remember it. Back to Psalm two again, the nation's rage. the kings to the earth gather together uh, to come against the Lord and against his anointed. At the end of this psalm, there's an incredible extension of grace and a call to repentance if if you see it there i and so you you have this. Typical in the Psalms pattern, you have this this uh, orientation. The kings of the earth are gathering together, and then you have a disorientation where the Lord a part read the verse. The Lord holds them in derision. Disorientation. People are running around thinking they know what they're doing, and they really don't. And then a reorientation that hopefully we will get to tonight beginning in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. But before that, one more thing about the begottenness of the Father, of the Son by the Father, but is there any questions so far? Or any answers? Close enough. Okay, we'll go to Hebrews 5. Which Bible do I want to use? Okay, I'll use this one. Hebrews chapter 1 is interesting because it tells us in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, that is, God the Father has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So as some believe, and I don't, because I think it's heresy, some believe that God the Father created God the Son, and God the Son created the world. I don't think so. John chapter 1, verse 1. You're with me on that one, aren't you? Yeah. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning. Not after the beginning, God got lonely and decided to have a son. No, that, that's, that, that, that doesn't line up with either John 1, 1 or even Genesis chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 5. I've got to find where I'm going here, guys. I found this to be interesting because I never really thought about this. Too much. Okay. The argument in the book of Hebrews, the main overarching argument is the supremacy of Christ. Back to, uh, I'll, you don't have to turn, but I'll just kind of refer to it. Hebrews 1, having become much better than the angels, uh, Jesus is referred to. And, and at the very beginning, I'll turn really quick, um, if I can find it. In verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Chapter 1 is talking about the supremacy of Christ over the angelic beings. He's far superior. Far superior. After chapters 2 and 3 and particularly 4 that talks about the entering into our rest in Christ, then the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is far superior than the Levitical priesthood. Remember, this is also a comparison between Old and New Covenants in the book of Hebrews. So, he tells us in verse 4 of Hebrews 5, No man takes this honor, that is the priesthood, to himself, but he who was called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first Levitical priest, all right? Moses anointed him. He was considered one of the anointed, yet far inferior to the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? You follow me so far, all right? But this really, I thought this was fascinating because in verse five it says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he, he being God the Father, who said to him, Jesus, God the Son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so where where are we going with this? Let's keep reading. Why is the writer of Hebrews quoting Psalm 2 here? As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm trying to think if we have time to go to Genesis 14 and look and see who Mel. You guys, who is Melchizedek? Anybody, real quick. I got someone shaking their head. Let's go to Genesis 14 quickly. Go ahead. Nice and loud. Go ahead. So everybody hear you. He's the high priest. priest Yes. So Melchizedek is a mystery. All right. Genesis 14. We're going to go there. I'm going to use the ESV on this one because I'm running out of Bibles. So you'll be all right with it. just, this is, to me, the way this story is told and then what comes after it just fascinates me. I was reading this this afternoon going, wow, this is incredible. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm only getting just bits and pieces of this. Okay, the backstory. story. All right, that'll help catch you up. Abraham comes in from the Urakaldees. He comes into what is the promised land. All right. He's in the land that God gave him. There were other people who lived there. And he has a nephew that he brought with him. Wasn't really supposed to bring the nephew. But I'm not going there this morning. Or this evening. And eventually because of the infighting. Between Lot's herdman. And Abraham's herdman. Lot and Abraham. Who was Abram at the time. They separate. Okay. So. Along comes a king who takes Lot into captivity. So Abraham, who must have been Abram, uh, either way. His name is Abram at the time, but I'm going to probably call him Abraham anyway. Because he did get a name change shortly after this. He goes and he rescues, and he, he actually has this federation of different peoples. And they rescue Lot and the other people who were taken into captivity. So, it says, and, and, and the king's name was, was I've got to be able to pronounce it, Sh- Shador Laomir. That's not a good pronounce. Shador Laomir. Okay. Uh, and it tells us in verse 17 of chapter 14 of Genesis. After his return from the defeat of Shador Laomir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, who was a good guy at the time, all right, But let's not, I'm not going to, let's not muddy the waters too much. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavev, That is the king's valley. All right. They go out to meet who? Abram. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, let me, I'm going to explain this in a second, but let me stop in my, in my tracks because Melchizedek places this incredible blessing upon Abram. And the following chapter, what happens? God comes and he ap- appears to Abram in a vision, and he, he tells him, uh, how blessed he is and that his all the nations will call him blessed. And he says, I don't even have any kids. And he tells him to go out and look at the stars and count them if you can, and so shall your descendants be. And the scripture tells us that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. To me, that's, now this is the second visitation of God concerning the covenant that he will then make and ratify and sign, if you will, in the book of Genesis in chapter 15. But it was, I, I, I really feel that the blessing of Melchizedek was what put this in motion. Now God had already planned it right in verse chapter 12, but the blessing of Melchizedek, I believe put this in motion. Now, The time of Abram, or Abraham, was before the Bible was written. All right? There was no Levitical priesthood. There was no tabernacle. There were no Ten Commandments. The people had not even gone to Egypt to go into captivity yet. Follow me? So here you have this man, Melchizedek, Who was the priest of the most high God. Existing. Before the time of the Levitical priesthood. Hugely important. It tells us he is the king of Salem. Salem. Do you know what the word Salem means? Some of you know. Exactly. He's the king of peace. Peace. He is either a type of, and when I say type, I mean illustration of, or some actually believe he is a pre-incarnate appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Abram gives him a tithe, and you have the greater blessing the lesser. And he bestows this incredible blessing upon Abram, and he also comes forth with what? What's it say in the text? Bread and wine. What should that remind you of? It's communion, yeah. The body and blood. So you have this this incredible... I want to take a class on Melchizedek when I get to heaven, all right? But you have this incredible illustration of this this priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ who, according to the book of Hebrews chapter 5... Whoever wrote it, don't ask me who, because I don't know. Says that when God the Father said to God the Son, today I have begotten you, not only did he beget him as king, but he begot him, according to Hebrews 5, as priest. To me, that's, that just fascinates me. Because you have, you have... Other than Melchizedek, you have no one in scripture that was both king and priest. Now David was king and prophet. Jesus is king, priest, and prophet. But as the kings were anointed, so also the priests were anointed. And the importance of the priesthood is that we have someone who always makes intercession for us before God the Father, and he is our representation to God the Father. So when you stand before God the Father, he will see his son, Jesus Christ, our high priest. Which gives me a whole lot of sense of relief because I don't, don't know that I would really want him looking at me all by myself. So the begottening of the son is this recognition. And remember what I said last week, that, that part of the thinking in, in this word be, begetting or begotten in the Hebrew is this statement of and recognition of a condition that already exists. So, and that's why where I, where I took it to Romans 4 where it says God who, who declares things that do not exist as though they did. Because that's what he's doing here in Romans. Excuse me. That's what he's doing here in Psalm chapter 2. And begetting, begetting, the begotten of the son, that's better, to be both king and priest. Forever. Fulfilling, hopefully you're following me on this, fulfilling 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise that God made to David that you will not fail to have one of your descendants sit on the throne forever. This This whole psalm, Psalm 2, ties directly back in to what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 and also declared in Psalm 89, which we don't really haven't taken a lot of time to look at. Any questions or thoughts on this? slightly here you're still absorbing it did it really to me I was like wow cuz I'm like to me this is like slightly here for me this is like this is almost too wonderful for me to comprehend to be honest with you because of the 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 sufficiency of Christ and it's right here in the Old Testament um, And it, it, and I don't know. You know, you think about uh, how the New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, how they engaged with the Old Testament, and and did anybody know this before? I don't know. I think this was they understood this was messianic, but they didn't quite have be able have the ability to piece it all together. So that's verse seven. No questions. Where were we? Um, and then the son says of the father, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now, what's fascinating about this, and I, I don't want to go out on a limb, but I do and I don't, because especially if I don't, you may, if I do, you may not appreciate it anyway, but, um. is referring to the nations, which in the Hebrew this is the word Goyim, which can also be translated what? Gentiles. Now I'll go out on a limb a little bit further. Brian likes it when I do this because he tries to push me off. Is it possible, I'm asking this more as a question, sometimes a question is a statement, but I don't want to have the guts to make it, but anyway, is it possible that this is a prophecy of the church? Which is primarily Gentile. But how many times do we see in the Old Testament that that the, the prophecies, particularly of the kingdom age, is not just to Israel? Genesis chapter 12, which was the first time that God spoke to Abram, and in, he says, and in you what? In you what? All the nations will be blessed. And Galatians and Romans, I think it's Romans 4, could be 5, Galatians 2, Galatians 3, it's really clear that the seed of that promise is Jesus Christ. So, I mean, all this starts really... Do you see how this all just really ties back in together? And, you know, and we so much of this, we can trace it back to the promise that God made to Abraham because the promise that God made to Abraham was is still in effect. In, in, and I've told you guys this before, Jewish thinking, a you have a covenant that is made and that's there, it's cast in stone and the additional covenants that God makes with humanity are addendums to the first covenant. They don't, they don't, even the new covenant. Which Jesus declared. Jeremiah says the new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Jesus says this is the new covenant which is, the, which is my blood. Which is given for the lives of many. And that phrase the many can refer also to Gentiles. So, I think it's very possible when he says, ask me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. But it's also, I think, starting to open the door to understanding a, a prophecy of what you and I, most of us, would call the millennial reign, where Christ comes and reigns for a thousand years. Um, I think it's Revelation 20, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't look it up, so this is out of my memory. Somewhere in the very back of the book of Revelation, you feel, should be proud because I went to the back of a book. But anyway, I think it's six times it mentions a 1,000 years. And so I don't believe that that is uh, a, a metaphorical number. I think, I think we're, we're, we're speaking much more concretely here. Um, and then we get into this idea... Uh, Ask me, I'll give the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That is the extension of a dominion, is it not? Now, obviously, the the ends of the earth is a reference not just to geography, but the people who were in that geography. And he says, and you will break them with a rod of iron. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? You will break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And that sounds pretty harsh. The rod of iron and breaking, this idea of breaking, can also be translated, and the Septuagint translates it this way, you will rule them with a rod of iron. If you go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, to the church of Thyatira, Jesus says to the overcomer of the church of Thyatira, I'm going to abbreviate this because I've only got 10 minutes and I really would like to get through this chapter tonight. But Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, well, I got to read it or else I'm going to I'm going to botch it. I'm close. How's that? Re- Re- Revelation chapter 2 verse 27. 26 25 24 Now to you I I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine um, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast and wait till, uh, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So to the overcomer, he will give them the power over the nations. And then he quotes here, um, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potters' vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Notice, have received, that's past tense. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's currently ruling. But not yet in its fullness. It's also given to us in, in Revelation chapter 12, uh, with a reference we have this I, I, and I want to go there because it don't takes 10 minutes almost to explain Revelation chapter 12 But it's it's this description of the one who rules with a rod of iron And then in Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 is the description of Jesus coming back And it's referring to him as the one who rules with a rod of iron Now the interesting thing about the rod In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word taken out of Psalm chapter 2, it can also, uh, it's also used in Leviticus 27, 32. And, boy, I'm making you write like crazy tonight, aren't I? And Ezekiel 20, 37. I just go E-Z for Ezekiel. Oh, yeah. Okay, you got this down. Uh, It's referring to the shepherd's rod. Or the shepherd's crook. Right? The, the little thing that you grab the sheep. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We've got a few more weeks before we get to Psalm 23, but anyway. Um, so there's a lot there really to consider. There, there's the, uh, and it just popped into my head, and I hate, I shouldn't tell you this because I don't remember where it is. Uh, is, I think it's romans I think it 's Romans eight no Romans eleven at the end of Romans eleven consider the severity and the grace of God and the lovingness of god yes Romans eleven and that 's not quite how it 's worded. You can turn there and look at it later, but here you have this 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 really this twofold understanding of, of God in his actions he's either acting out, out of incredible loving kindness to those who trust in him but to severity to those who reject him and incidentally is as, as i thought about the book of revelation this this afternoon you have the seven letters of the seven churches and and everybody makes such a big deal about well there's two churches that are not corrected. It's it's Smyrna and it's Philadelphia. And yes, that's true. The other five get corrections. But the reality is, I think another way to look at those letters is not look at the the churches that are corrected and those who are not, but I would say we'd, we'd make a list of the overcomers, the promises given to overcomers. Because in every letter to every church there is a promise to the overcomer i think that is much more important for us to focus upon rather than who who who's a bad boy and who isn't but that's that was for free um you will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel and so that's a severe warning because again who is this re- What kicks this whole psalm off? Nations that are raging. People plotting a vain thing. Kings coming together. Rulers taking counsel together. Almost sounds like the United Nations. But I won't go there. But anyway. Plotting a vain thing. And the. One whom the Lord will set on His holy hill, His king, who is His king and His priest. He will rule them, break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, you've got to always ask what the therefore is therefore, right? In light of what we just read in 7, 8, and 9, the Holy Spirit now speaking. Well, of course, he speaks throughout the whole psalm. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. I read that, and my mind just went to all the Proverbs. By the way, I'm still reading the Proverbs every night. I try to every night. I I think it's just helpful. I'm starting to memorize some of them without trying to memorize them, which is a whole lot easier for me to do. Just keep reading it. Um, So... And the thing is, is I read it late at night. And it's like, oh, that would be a great psalm, a proverb just to bring out in, you know, in the message. I had like three of them lined up for last Sunday, and I never got to any of them. But, you know, I, was, I wanted to finish. But um, so be wise, O kings. Be instructed. I like that. So what you have here is an appeal to the mind. Be wise, be instructed. And be warned with what he wrote in verse 9. Now, this is mainly given toward the leaders, I think. And where it says, be instructed, could also be translated, be chastised. That would be a proper translation of that particular Hebrew word. Because these are people in rebellion against God. Be wise, be chastised. And, and I think it's interesting about this because I think it's, it's, a general, it's a general, and yes, there are exceptions, and I think there are very few, personally. But I think all in all, he, he, man does not really do well with power. Rulers and judges, okay? There's power there. And, and in reality, when God created man, what was one of the first things he did to, for him? Gave him dominion. And he probably did fine until the fall. They don't seem to do, most people don't seem to do well with power. Um, But Isaiah 28, verse 26 says, For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. All right? So it is an appeal to the mind. But what I'm seeing here in 10, 10, 11, and 12 is this extension of God's grace. And this extension of God calling them back. And how is this going to work? And how does this play out? And does this even play out within the realm of an end time scenario? With the Lord returning. Because there will be. It it seems to reason that there will be people. Who go into the millennial reign. Who have not died yet. In fact. Revelation talks about a rebellion. At the end of the millennium. and, And those were people who were born. During that time. Still with the sin nature but still living in, in a time of, of millennial peace for a, a thousand years. And, and to how, you know, I, I, I don't know. But to, how, to me, again, I see this as this incredible warning and this incredible uh, extension of God's grace. And, and he says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Um, now it's an appeal to the heart. It's an appeal to the will. It's an appeal to the heart. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9, I had to sneak a proverb in, right, a couple of them. Chapter 9, verse 10, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We looked at this quite a bit when we went through Ecclesiastes. But the the idea of of the fear of the the Lord is is a condition of our heart. It's a condition of our will. And it really, as I thought about this and I read this, Tim, can I have a few minutes over? Thanks for that. Okay, um, almost done. But uh, I got a minute and plus. But it made me wonder how often it is that we pursue the wrong things. What are we pursuing? And what are we what are we attempting to go after? Uh, I think I think godly fear puts things in perspective. Um, the counselor and me. A lot of emotions are really rooted in fear. But those emotions, that fear, one, it can be a very good thing. You know, um, I remember with a guy, and he was walking across, you know the guardrails going across the freeways, right? You have the, the overpasses going over the freeway and the big guardrail. Well, he got up on top of the guardrail and walked across the guardrail going over the freeway on one side, traffic on the other. Um, he didn't have any fear, um, but I didn't think he was very smart. That's, I'm, I'm putting it nicely and keeping it nice, but he, I mean, there were cars honking at him, and it was I, the whole time I'm watching, him like you're an idiot. But anyway, he, he didn't didn't seem to have any fear. If he had fallen, he would have lost his life. So sometimes fear can be a very good thing. Fear is like an alarm going off inside of our souls. Um, and I think, I think godly fear, fear humbles us. It helps us see how small we are, and when we really start to see how small we are, we begin to see how large God really is. But often we don't see how large God really is until we recognize how small we really are. That's another way of saying humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift, raise you up in due time that James talks about and also Peter talks about. Um, But fear, that emotion, is an attention-getter to let you know that something isn't right. And yet to stay in that place of godly fear, godly reverence, godly respect, recognizing his largeness and understanding our smallness. It's not an easy place to be. But the problem is, when you lose that fear, that should also be an attention-getter. I was talking with a guy recently, and he says, yeah, every time things go well in my life, I screw it up. And based on what he told me, I, I get it. I, I, yeah, that's exactly what you're doing every time. You get, things go bad, he gets right with God. It's like the book of Judges, you know. They, th- things are good, they forget God, they sin, God raises up somebody to bring them into judgment, to call them back, they repent, they ask God's help, God delivers them, and the whole cycle goes over and over again in the book of Judges. All right. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This word kiss is the idea of paying true homage to being sincere. Um, the fear of God should produce worship. That's what this is saying, I believe. The fear of God should produce worship in our lives. And really, there's an incredible amount of grace, I think, being offered here. The Lord's returned, ready to break him with a rod of iron, and, and, and he's saying, be wise, be instructed, be chastened, fear the Lord, Kiss the Lord, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Sounds like that's like, like they're, they're given one last chance. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it, there, there, like I said, there's a lot of grace here. Or this could be transported into the life of us as Christians. Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, while it is still today, do not harden your heart as in the day of provocation. And I, so I think this, there's an, an incredible application for each and every one of us each and every day. And then it ends with a blessing. Blessed are those who put their...